0: If you are joining us for the first time, we have been going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Pastor Tom, I think, has been doing an awesome job of kicking it off and laying a framework of what Jesus is doing in this sermon. And just to recap, uh, a lot of us famously understand the Sermon on the Mount to be kind of moralistic teachings. Here's like ten things that a good Christian does. Don't do this, don't do that. And that's how I was taught it. But what Jesus is doing, he's actually painting a much more holistic picture of what he calls the kingdom. So he says... If I'm the king, here's what kingdom life and culture looks like. And what he's been showing week after week is life in the kingdom, it is way deeper and way further than just behavior. It's not just about what you do with your hands, it goes far deeper and much more profoundly to the heart. And it's especially helpful for people in our context to know this because remember, the majority of the crowd that Jesus was speaking to were religious people. These are people who had grown up in the church. They have been taught the law, the Old Testament. They knew that they're supposed to obey. They knew that they were supposed to follow God. And I think that's a lot of us here. Whether you haven't been church in a long time and you're coming back whether you've been churched and you grew up in the church. And so what Jesus is doing to particularly the religious mold is he's dismantling the shallow understanding of the kingdom that had taken over their minds because the way that they understood the kingdom and maybe the way that a lot of us do is we make God's kingdom and the Christian life more about what we do rather than who we are. And Jesus flips that right side up and says, it's not about what you look like on the outside, but it's the person you are and who you are becoming on the inside. And that's why Jesus has been saying things like, hey, you heard and you were taught, don't murder. But I say to you, it goes far deeper than that. The heart of that command is you need to love your neighbor and you can't just let unchecked anger fester there. Because in my kingdom, relationships really matter. Not just on the surface. Last week we heard... Hey, you were taught, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, the real issue of that goes far deeper. Don't let unchecked lust fester in your heart, because in God's kingdom, sexual ethics and practice matter from inside out. Now, today's message, Jesus brings up a seemingly more low-key issue compared to these hot topics like murder and adultery. Uh, But I will tell you, and I'm going to argue through the message, I think this issue is far more prevalent It is far more dangerous, especially for, again, a handful of maybe moral, good, religious people like us, or a lot of us. And the issue that Jesus is going to tackle today, it is this issue of truthfulness. Truthfulness. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, let's look at the text. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting from verse 33, we're going to read from verse 33 to verse 37. Matthew chapter 5, starting from verse 33, Jesus begins his teaching, his reading of God's word. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one, amen. This is the reading of God's word. Now when you see this text, it might seem a little strange at first glance because number one, it definitely doesn't seem as serious categorically as the past two topics of murder and adultery. Not only that, uh, Pastor Tom appropriately shared, hey, the Sermon on the Mount, it's about kingdom living which ultimately boils down to healthy relationships in, in community. How we are to treat each other as humans, so how does oaths and being truthful fit into that paradigm? Glad you asked. That's what we're going to tackle. And before I get there, I have to give credit where it's due. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller heavily, heavily inspired and influenced me in this topic. And so I want to give him credit. But the three ways we'll look at is number one, what exactly is the issue of truthfulness at hand? Number two, what is the challenge of truthfulness in pursuing it? And three, the call. The issue, the challenge, and call of truthfulness. So first the issue. And so Jesus, he begins the pattern that he's been showing in the past two weeks, which is he refers to and brings up a familiar Old Testament teaching that all of them should have known in verse 33. He says, you've heard, you've been taught, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, unlike the previous two topics, he's not quoting a chapter or verse. He's giving kind of a summary teaching of what the entire Old Testament had to say about swearing and making oaths. Now, swearing is not like cursing. It's swearing like I swear or I promise. And so maybe more contemporary term we could think about is Jesus. Is the issue he's bringing up is promises. Public, serious promises. It's helpful to know in the ancient world, they were an oral culture. Not so much today. Words meant a lot more and were much more weighty back then. Today, if you want something to be weighty, you have to write it on paper, right? That's why contracts are a big thing. Uh, When my parents moved to Korea and they can't handle their affairs here, they had me sign what's called a power of attorney, which is basically a written contract and promise that they give me the power to take care of all their affairs. And the stamp to really show you're serious is you get it notarized, which means there is an impartial witness who sees it happens and that's kind of like, wow, this is a serious commitment. Back then... That level of seriousness was just the same for public oral promises. So if I had made a promise to someone and I said, hey, I swear to you and somebody witnessed that, it was just as binding as today's notarized written contract. And whether it's written, whether it's spoken, what binds those two together is the idea that there is an observing and a form of accountability by virtue of a witness. They're making sure you stay true to your word. Or the way Pastor Tim Keller puts it, it is a A contract or oath, it is an observed word. That's what gives it gravity. Now, the reason that the Old Testament even allowed swearing and oaths, because they wanted to encourage and strengthen truthfulness. And we do this today too, without even knowing it. For example, if after service I said to you, hey, let's go hang out together, you would hope that I mean it. I'm being truthful. But if I wanted to show you I'm serious about it, I would say something like, you know, I promise you we're going to hang out. Or I swear to you, let's find the time to hang out. Now hopefully the first one was just as true. But anyone who heard the second would think, wow, he's really serious. And if he doesn't hang out, he's done something more than just lie. He's kind of almost broken trust. And so the Old Testament law, what it did is it permitted someone to bring in God's name as a degree of seriousness. To essentially say, with God as witness, I am making a vow to you. I am swearing to you. Well, the issue that Jesus is tackling with the Jewish leaders is they took that law, that good intention law that said, yes, you have to keep your oath if you swear to God. But what they said is, okay, if you swear to God, you have to keep it. But if you swear to anything else, you don't really have to keep it as seriously. So what they did is they created a whole subset of laws saying, hey, if swearing to God is the golden standard of seriousness, if you swear to something else... You don't have to be as serious or you don't have to be as broken if you don't follow through. So for example, let's say back then I borrowed money from you and I said, I swear to God, I'll pay you back. That was legally binding. And I had, I had a commitment to follow through. But if I said something like, you know, I swear by the holy city of Jerusalem that I'll pay you back. Or I swear on my mom's grave. Or I swear uh, by the clothes on my back that I will pay you back might sound serious, but it's the equivalent of doing what a lot of us understood as kids. It's fingers crossed. I may or may not do it, or I actually don't intend to do it at all. That's what was going on here. And so depending on the weight of what you swore on, they created this whole system of varying degrees of truthfulness, essentially to build a, a, a roundabout way to get away with lying, to get away with deception. That's what was going on. And because Jesus saw this oath system and vow system, it's become so corrupt, so full of deceit, he calls it out. And at first glance, it seems like Jesus is saying don't swear at all. Because if you look at verse 34, that's what he says. He says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And this is where it's helpful to understand scripture. Uh, This obviously is not the surface value of what Jesus is saying because number one, the apostle Paul takes oaths and vows and he understood the scripture as well. When he writes the epistles, he says, I vow to you in the presence of the living God, X, Y, Z. Jesus himself takes an oath before Pilate because Pilate charges him under oath. Are you who they say you are? And Jesus says, I am, which means he himself is under oath. And God throughout the Old Testament makes oaths. He makes covenants. He gets witnesses that, hey, I will be faithful. I will bless you. So it cannot be that Jesus is saying do not make oaths because he himself does it. So what he's saying is I'm not talking about the idea of serious commitments. For example, Jesus will fully say there is a difference between the level of seriousness when I am on the altar on my wedding day and I'm making a vow and oath to my wife versus when I say, hey, let's go grab coffee sometime. There's differing varies of seriousness and commitment. So the issue that he's saying is not how serious you are about it. Rather, it's but there should not be varying levels of truthfulness in the kingdom of God. There shouldn't be varying levels of truthfulness where in certain situations or certain people, you're this honest and upright and moral, uh, truthful person. But in other circumstances, uh, you don't feel the need to be. Or you're suddenly different. And that was the issue with Jews. They did what we all do today. They separated what they believed the sacred and the secular. Where vows to God When God was involved, it takes utmost seriousness and gravity, but other things don't matter as much. And their true character would alter between the two. How many of you guys can relate to that? Well, I think we can relate because the problem of separating the sacred and secular, it's in all of our DNA. It could be as simple as if you grew up. And your parents told you, you know, church is a holy place. So at church, you have to be on your best behavior. And so I remember all my friends growing up who had, you know, potty mouths and would cuss all the time. When they stepped foot in the church for some reason, they felt like I can't cuss. Because God is here. God is present. But the second they step out of church and Monday hits, when you go hang out in the home, suddenly free reign. Let that fire out. And so you're naturally kind of almost taught and modeled that there are places where God is present. And you got to be careful because God's watching. But there's places where God's not as present and just do what you want. That's how a lot of religious people are taught and grow up. And even non-Christians see that. And that's where a lot of times you see the accusations of hypocrisy, duplicity, what's going on. There's an inconsistency here. And the false notion this reveals, which is utterly contrary to the kingdom rule of God, is that that shows that God's reign and rule in your life is limited to a context, a place, or a day of the week. That's what's going on here. And what Jesus is saying in this text is whether you swear by God's name, or by heaven, or by earth, or Jerusalem, or even your own head, God's rule and reign is everywhere. It's an all things in every location every relationship every conversation whether you're at church whether you're at work every yes and every no that comes out of your mouth while it may vary in degrees of commitment should be just as truthful as if you swore to God every time why because God's kingdom rule and reign is everywhere he is always the witness so the issue at hand that Jesus addresses is sure, oath and promise keeping in, in specific, but overall he's talking about in my kingdom, truthfulness is of utmost importance. In fact, it's pretty mind-boggling when you study the scriptures, yes, there's many things God does not like. Yes, he doesn't like sin in general. But if you read the Proverbs, in Proverbs 16 in particular, it actually zeroes in and says there's certain things God really doesn't like. In fact, it goes as far as to say God actually hates certain things. He detests certain things. And it says there's seven things that God absolutely abhors. And two out of the seven is number one, a lying tongue. And number two, a false witness. In other words, those things matter to God. They matter to God. So that's the issue. Now number two, let's dig into why is this so challenging? Why is truthfulness so challenging for us today? Well, let me paint a very simple picture. If I ask a question in light of the two sermons we've heard today, raise your hand If you've committed a murder before, please don't raise your hand, okay. Now let's just say some people raise their hand, like the person right next to you raised their hand. Tell me, could you carry on? (laughs) No. You would feel extremely uncomfortable. You would want to go away. You would never let them near your kids. You would think, oh, my goodness, this, you know, crazy sinner. Or if I asked, according to last week, who here has committed adultery? Very awkward, right? And if you saw that and one of the spouses raised their hand, then you'd just be like, oh, super uncomfortable. Or it's just very taboo and you don't know what to do. You kind of get squirmy and you would hope, please no one. And the reason why do we do those things? We do those things because we feel shocked at those sins. What if I asked you, raise your hand if you ever lied before. Raise your hand if you ever told a half truth or shaded the truth or you fabricated some sort of truth. My guess is that everyone would raise their hands very comfortably. No one would feel shocked. No one would think it's a big deal. And in precisely therein is the challenge. Nobody thinks truthfulness is a big deal. You see, things like violence, murder, sexual sin, they have a shock factor. The loud and fiery nature of those things, I would argue, those things in itself make religious or moral people want to stay away from those things. Irregardless of Jesus. I know plenty of non-Christians who say, man, I don't want to commit adultery and you know, I don't want to murder anyone and it has nothing to do with Jesus. I just think those are bad things. But a lie, a half-truth, one word of deception. Doesn't it seem so innocent? And if you think about it, our entire fabric of society is built on lies and deception. It's the air we breathe in the culture we live in. Whether it's lawyers, businessmen, car salesmen, politicians, reporters, hashtag fake news. What's even reliable anymore? We have a hard time trusting anyone because literally our entire society is built off lying and deception. And it might not be outright lies, but in the realm of deception, follow things like half truths, exaggeration, flattery, any departure from the truth. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because scriptures say, you know who rules and reigns in this earth and this world right now? It is Satan. And do you know what his primary description is in John chapter 8? He is the father of lies. His rule and reign is reflecting who he is. In Genesis 3, the original sin that came from the father of lies is deception. He took the purest truth of who God is. He contorted it, twisted it, gave a half truth. And now all of humanity, all of us today are suffering for that. And what we are plagued with is the greatest epidemic the history has ever seen, which is our desire and capacity for honesty and truthfulness was absolutely marred at the garden. Now, the picture perfect to illustrate the challenge and danger of the issue is in the famous proverb story of the frog in the kettle or the boiling frog. I don't know if you heard it before. My parents told me this all the time. I'm not sure what they were trying to communicate to me, but they did tell me this. And if you haven't, basically the short proverb goes, you put a frog in boiling water, it's going to jump right out. Because it seems dangerous, it seems hot, it's going to preserve itself. But you put a frog in warm water, and then you slowly boil it and turn it up. The frog would chill out, not receive the danger, and it would be cooked to death and boiled alive. That's how the proverb goes. Now, I don't know if that's what actually happens. I actually Googled it, and it's funny. There's like a whole scientific community being like, actually, a frog wouldn't do that. That's not the point, okay? You get the idea. You see, one little lie, one little distortion of truth very well may be inconsequential, But if you carry on with that nonchalant posture towards deception, towards falsehood, scripture says you will get cooked alive in untruthfulness. And the Bible is clear. And we've seen this happen even in contemporary culture. You will reap what you sow. Your sins will find you out. There's only so many lies and deceptions you can build yourself upon before it all will crumble and we see this happen all the time in the news right that people who've lived a life of prolonged lying that the lying becomes so complex that they don't know what's lies and truth anymore and i would say the most underrated sin that is habitually wrecking people is compulsive lying nobody calls it out because it's so normal to us but you know what compulsive lying is it means you have developed such a pattern of lying that you yourself do not even know you're lying anymore there's no truth in your life anymore And that's why, and I love again how Pastor Tim Keller puts it. He says, therefore, Jesus is saying, the battle for truthfulness, it is not waged in these all-out nuclear wars like lust and adultery or violence and murder. But it is in every little yes and no that you dish out. The battle of truth is fought in the seemingly tiny inconsequential thing. Now, I've been speaking very conceptually. So what does it actually look like? Let me kind of turn it to us now. And shine the light and give four quick ways of how this might play out for us. And as I do that, I hope you can ask yourself, wow, this is present in my heart and life. I didn't even realize that. Number one, the first way this plays out is when you say one thing, but you do another. Very straightforward. So example, after service, as we often do, people people are trickling out and somebody says, hey, do you want to come eat with me at the source? And you say, oh, yeah, absolutely, I'll be there. And you don't go. I mean, it's not a big deal, but you've lied. (laughs) You have technically said you're going to do it, but you didn't. Or it could be telling your spouse, oh, I'll take care of that chore. I'll take care of that, you know, the dishes or or, or the trash. And you don't. Or this might convict all of us who are religious. How about when somebody says, I'm going through something and you say, I'll pray for you. But you never do. Now, again, these things sound so petty. But if you develop a habit and pattern to saying things but not following through, what this text is saying is be careful. That could become who you are. Secondly, it plays out that you say one thing, but you think another. And this is a very unique Asian problem. You know why? Because all our parents do this. <laughs> right? We saw them say, like, oh, your child is so beautiful. You know, I hate that kid. Right? That's just, that's just ooh, that's the air we breathe. Saying one thing but thinking another. For example, you have a birthday party. And you feel obligated to invite that person you really don't like, but you just think about the social scales and you're like, oh, if I don't invite them, it's going to cause more problems. So I will kind of invite them, but uh, we'll see what happens. So you invite them. Sorry, I'm getting really real, okay. So you invite them and they say, oh, I'm so sorry I can't be there. And you say, I'm so sad that you can't be there. And in your head, you're thinking, praise God. So happy. Nobody forced you to lie. Or somebody says, hey, what do you think of this food? I really wanted you to try it. And you say it's amazing when you think it's disgusting. Or someone sends you a resume and asks, can you give me your opinion on my resume? And you say, oh, this looks great. When you say, oh, you're never going to get the job in your head. Doesn't it sound so normal? We all do this. Number three, it plays out when you say one thing here and another thing there. You're a chameleon. When you talk to one group of people... You talk like this. When you talk to another group of people, you talk like that. And what is utterly scary and you know you are treading in dangerous waters are when what you say in those two settings are polar opposite. That's when you know you are treading down that scale. And fourth, because of the text, it plays out in the way that we take our vows and our promises so lightly. Like I said, Jesus is not... Disregarding the, the purpose of vows and commitments. He himself says it throughout the scriptures. Now, obviously, we don't live in a society where oaths and vows are that important, I guess, or that frequently used. But if you want to know what a big deal is, just go to the court of law. You know, for whatever reason, I think the most well documented court case recently has been Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, right? He's suing her for defamation, basically saying, like, she made up all these alleged lies about me and cost me my fortunes. And it's crazy how that's, like, front and center. And what I remembered is any time you testify in court, they make you put your hand in the Bible and say, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. Which is funny to me because that basically means, like, you're a liar, so we need to bind you to make sure you don't lie. And the consequence of breaking that oath, even in secular law, is, is punishment. If you break oath, you're going to be punished. And they're not even Christian. Now what are some examples of vows that are serious that maybe we, we wane in our, our seriousness? Number one, married couples. You realize on your wedding day, you literally made an oath before God and these witnesses verbatim that I'm going to be faithful to my spouse. I'm going to love them in sickness or health till death do us part. Now albeit imperfectly, does the weight of that vow... Carry a little firmer than maybe just a lonchalot statement you make. Or do you see it as an afterthought? Or here's another more applicable one. Members, prospective members. You realize every members meeting, without fail, we start by reciting vows that we made. Nobody forced you to make the vow. Vows that we made to covenant together as a community and say, even if you're not my best friend, even if we might not naturally get along, as believers in Christ, I vow to covenant with you, to strive to love you, to try to be there for you, to try to hold each other accountable. Do you take that seriously or are you scratching your head being like, we have membership vows? What's that? I'm always encouraged when a prospective member tells me I'm going to hold off on membership because I read the vows and I want to make sure I can follow through. Versus the flip side of that, someone's like, oh, I'm good, 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 good. That makes me scratch my head more. I'm like, oh, you must not really understand what's going on here and the gravity of it. Or quite simply, do you regularly dish out empty promises that you do not intend to keep? So much pain, especially in childhood, has come for a lot of us when promises were broken. Now, Obviously, there's more examples I can give. But in light of the few I've mentioned, have you ever wondered why are we tempted to do this? Let me give three simple reasons why. Number one is because we want to look better. Right? We exaggerate, we lie, we distort truth to preserve a certain image or reputation. I mean, Instagram is literally built off of this. You fabricate and you present how you want to see yourself, even if it's not fully truthful. Why? Because you want to pretend that things are great to look better. Number two, to protect ourselves. This is seen since Adam and Eve. The reason we lie or deceive is because we want to avoid consequence. You want to know that? Serve an education, talk to the kids. (laughs) Nobody teaches them that. My one-and-a-half-year-old Ezra, when he does something wrong, he can't even talk yet, but I know he's lying. See it in his eyes. It oozes out of him. It's the fall. Our natural instinct is to lie because we want to protect ourselves. We don't want to face consequence. Or third, sounds a little sinister, it's to gain something we want. Lying is just a means to an end. Silly example of this, let's say somebody walks into the church. They look like a friendly person. You want to befriend them. so you're like, yeah, I want to grab a meal with them. And say, hey, let's get a meal. Anything you want. And the person says, you know, I love Indian food. And let's say you hate Indian food. You absolutely detest it. You can't stand it. But in that moment, you say, me too. I love naan. I love curry. And you go along. Why? You have simply lied because it's a means to an end for you to get closer to someone. And in doing it, you have started that relationship off in deception. I could go on and on and on. Or when it comes to promises, I am guilty of this. Do some of you guys in friendship, marriage, family life, parenting, dish out promises simply because you do not want to deal with it in the moment. I don't know how many I have of this. Hey, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. Okay, I promise I'll do it. No intention of following through. Totally fingers crossed. Why? Because you don't want to be bothered in the moment. Jesus says, watch out. I could go on and on. Now I have to include this because I know some people like this. A wrong application of this. Is for people who are saying, I knew just speaking the truth was the way to go. And you're looking around, I'm just honest, when you give me bad food, I tell you it sucks. And now Jesus says that's the way to go. That's not what I'm saying here. Scriptures marry truth and love together. They are always in conjunction. And that's a whole other sermon in itself. But this application is not therefore a license to be a jerk. Okay? Some people are just jerks under the guise of truth. That's not what scripture is saying here. But all that is to say the fight for truthfulness is challenging because all of these seemingly insignificant, normal, regular self-preserving habits of deception and lying are just normal. Now here's the golden question. If the Sermon on the Mount is about relationships and the way we treat each other as humans, how does truthfulness fit into the paradigm of relationships? Which is number three, the call. And I'll try to move through this one quick as I can. Number one, or not number one, but ask yourself this question genuinely. Have you ever been lied to on any level? Has someone ever lied to you? Think about that and how that made you feel. Maybe you went to something as shallow as a car dealer and he swore on his life $20,000 is the cheapest price you'll ever get. So he said, I trust you, man. You bought it. Ten minutes later someone comes in He says $18,000 is the cheapest you're going to get. And you feel this sense of like betrayal and disgust, right? Or maybe in friendship, this friend says, I got your back. Everything I say to you, is only all, that's all I will ever say, and then you hear they talk behind your back. Or in marriage, you realize, man, my spouse has not been completely honest with me and I had to find out from someone else. Or parents, you find out kids have been lying to you, which happens all the time. Isn't it true, no matter the context of the relationship, being lied to in any degree is hurtful, amen? And it makes you angry. It makes you disappointed. Now think about that for a moment. Why is it that we automatically presume that people owe us truth? You ever ask that question? Like if if life in the world is really about everyone does what they want, if they choose to lie to you in that moment, who are you to say you have a right to say that they did something wrong to you? Why is it that we are so betrayed and we feel like something is so deeply wrong when somebody does not give us the truth? As if it's something that should be assumed. As if it's something that we are owed. And the best answer I can think of is the biblical one. Which is maybe because we were created for truth. We were created for truthfulness. That God's design for human flourishing and harmony since the very beginning was relational honesty and truthfulness. That's what paradise was. Adam and Eve had no need to be shamed in being honest. No need to cover up. No need to flatter one another, no need to exaggerate one another or twist or contort the truth. But when the design was broken was when sin and Satan entered the picture and tainted that with what? Destructive deception. But nevertheless, fallen as we might be, we are still designed for truth. You know why? Scriptures say we are creatures created in the image of a creator. And our creator is someone who loves, radiates, emanates, and embodies truth. In its purest form. Jesus says, I am the truth. And in that light, don't you see, in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is describing in his kingdom ethic and culture, it is not a departure from human design, but it is a returning to its truest form. You see, religious people, we hate the scriptures because commands seem like a departure from true joy. I used to always look at my non-Christian friends and say, Jesus is taking me away from all these things that are making them so happy. Uh, Sexual looseness, do whatever you want, say whatever you want, break commitments, be free, and Jesus is binding me to all these things. I need to depart from true human joy. But if you really understand the scriptures and what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am offering you the truest original form of humanity. I'm wanting you to return to what it was always supposed to be. Now what gives him the right to dictate that? Because he created us. (laughs) What gives anyone the right to dictate anything about what should be a certain way? The creator. The designer. I love this example. What would you say to someone, say, can we grab coffee? And you're like, okay, and they come up to you and they say, you know, I want your advice for something. What's so wrong with breathing underwater? And you're like, huh? Like, I really want to breathe underwater. Why can't I? And you lovingly say, well, you can try, but you will die. The answer is simple. It's the law of design. Your lungs do not function underwater. They were not designed to breathe underwater. In a similar way, when Jesus says live a life of truthfulness and integrity, he is speaking from the perspective of a creator who understands you are designed for truth. And even though you might not die as immediately as when you try to engulf water into your lungs, you're essentially doing that. And it will be a prolonged, slow death of damage and destruction. And I don't have to convince anyone. Do you Just think of people, you know, situations, you know, that have been marred and destroyed because the entrance of deception and lies. Whether personally, relationally, communally. So the call is quite simple. He says, in my kingdom... We strive to live a life characterized by truthfulness and honesty. That there is an utter consistency to the best of our ability between what we say, what we do, who we are, where we're really at. Which is the definition of integrity. And that's why in verse 37, that's what he's saying. Let what you say. The word there for say is logos. Which basically means not in only certain moments, but in everyday conversation. That's what logos means. That your daily communication, wherever you are, yes means yes, no means no. Because you are a person of integrity. And when not just individuals, but an entire community does this and relates to one another in this way, that's when Jesus says, you are my kingdom on earth. And you will shine and stand out. Because the rest of the world lives in decay and deception. Now, as I share this, there's usually two ways that people respond to something like this. And probably to every message that has kind of the kingdom ethic uh, and this, again, is not just an issue of truthfulness. It could be on the issue of hatred, murder, lust, whatever it might be. And try to ask yourself, which one are you? The first way that some people respond, and this is me, these are usually the church religious people. You hear this message and you say, okay, Pastor Sam, thank you for sharing the word with us. I understand what I got to do. Let me add that to my to do list. So I got to not lust, I got to not hate, I got to not murder, and I got to not lie. Got it. So that's your tendency. You respond with a, a fervor of motivation that you're going to do what needs to be done. Now the second way you could respond and these are usually people who are not Christian or have really drifted far away and they're hanging on a thread. And those are the people who hear something like that and say, "Well, that's impossible. How could I ever do that? I'll never be able to do. That. In fact, I've already failed so much. What's the point? I'll never be good enough to be a part of God's kingdom." And in both of these responses, you see two misunderstandings the gospel. In the first response, the underlying false belief is, I can achieve righteousness. And the way some people live their Christian life, it oozes a pride that you think you have the capacity to change yourself. It is amazing. You know how you know this? Because the first response when you're broken and sinful and you failed is that you resolve that you're going to be better. As if you were not the reason in the first place that you were not better. That's the false underlying belief, that you somehow can achieve righteousness. And the second underlying false belief is that you are not worthy of righteousness. I messed up too much. I failed too hard. I'm not worthy. But these responses are not equal. You know who Jesus himself would say is closer to the entrance of the kingdom? It's the second. Here's why. It is not your record of righteousness that gives you keys to the kingdom It is your understanding and willingness to repent of your unrighteousness that gets you in. And this is why Jesus always says in the Sermon on the Mount, the people who look at the closest but are absolutely far from the kingdom are the Pharisees, the religious people who look all good on the outside. And those who are at the very doorstep of the kingdom back in the day were the prostitutes, the sinners, the people, the scum of society. Why? Because they at least have an awareness that I am exposed before God. Love this quote. I think it perfectly captures the gospel in today's topic. If you're struggling with like, but I am a I'm a liar, I'm a deceiver, I'm untruthful. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The only honesty you ever need to be saved is the willingness to be honest about your dishonesty. And that's Pastor Tim Keller. It's beautiful. The only honesty you ever need to be saved is to be willing to be honest about your dishonesty. And the <laughs> vice versa, the only dishonesty that will ever damn you in the kingdom Is your unwillingness to be honest that you are dishonest? So true. We're all broken. We all struggle. The Bible is remarkably self aware of that reality that we all fall short. In fact, it tells us we are. Otherwise, why would Jesus have had to come? Now, as I close, I know there's some of us here that struggle with believing and trusting that God Himself is truthful. That God means what he says and says what he means and that he will follow through. And usually, and I've talked to some of you here, and maybe you know some people like this. It's usually when you go through some really tough times. And I do not want to trivialize how hard life can get. Loss of a loved one. Loss of expectations. Loss of dreams. And no matter how much you study the Bible, no matter how much you know doctrine, I've experienced this in my own life too. Here's the question that usually seeps in, isn't it? How can I trust that God is good for his word... And he is faithful to follow through when so many things look like this in my life. When things are not going the way that I think a good God should let it. Or how do I know that God's going to follow through in his promise. That he really is about restoration, redemption over brokenness. Not in general to the whole world. But redemption in my life and my situation. And here's what I'll say. I don't think there is any objective answer that can fully satisfy that question. And that's why Christianity is a walk of faith. Do you know why we need faith? Because if we were able to fully know, you don't need faith. But let me also say that we are all a people of faith. If you think about it, to place trust in anyone's word or anyone's promise is a risk and an act of faith, is it not? Think about that. Like, How do you know? The promise of the American dream and the good life of a stable career family and home, that that really is the best thing to live for. You're a faithful person. You're placing a lot of faith in this promise. Or how do you know that the promise of wealth and stability really is the key to happiness? You have a lot of faith. We're all people of faith. And we live in light of the promises we think are most reliable. And even though there's no satisfactory objective answer, I will tell you the Bible does give you a hint though. Because you know one way you know someone is reliable and will be true to their word. And we all understand this. Is when they put a down payment. Someone's going to give you money. How do you know that they're probably good for their word? They give you a hefty down payment as proof in good faith that they are serious. Well, as Christians, I hope you understand the person speaking of the kingdom is the king himself, Jesus. He is speaking of a kingdom in which he himself is king. And he's not throwing down empty words. But very chapters later, he himself will give a down payment to prove it. That he's good to his word. It's not money. It's not material things. It's his life. And our ultimate hope and security lies there in the fact that Jesus The king came down from heaven, lived the perfect, pure, sinless, truthful life we were supposed to live and we could never achieve. Died the death and the judgment we deserved even today. And he rose again in power and he said, in all his truth and glory, come to me. Bring your anxieties, your worries, your fears, your brokenness, your shame, your burdens. I will take it all and through the spirit, through the word, through the church, gradually push you back to restoration, back to the original form of humanity you were intended for and that sin has marred. And here's the promise, and I will never leave you nor forsake you in that process. And the best part about it all is Jesus doesn't lie. Everybody lies, but not Jesus. He keeps his promises. He is faithful. He always has been Always will be. And the gospel says the payment of his blood shed on the cross and the proof of the power of the resurrection is the anchor that we can believe in that. And that's who he is. That's our king. That's the kingdom that is coming. So, as I invite the praise team up, if I can just lead us in time of reflection and prayer. For some, can I encourage you to take a moment maybe to more to explicit vows or promises that you've made before God, whether in marriage, whether in the church? Maybe for some of you guys it was your baptism. That is a spiritual vow before God that I no longer will live this life, but I want to live for you. Consider those things. Place weight on those things again. Ask God for the strength to do that. Or if you're not a Christian, can I ask you, what would happen if you were really totally honest with someone? I think any amount of fear should fill your heart. And what Jesus says is, you can be totally honest with me. And you're not going to receive judgment and shame like you would elsewhere, but you'll forgiveness, grace, and acceptance. And lastly, church, can we pray that we can reflect God's rule and reign as a church by being a people of truthfulness in every sphere of our lives. And we'll need the Spirit's help to apply that. So let's take a moment to reflect and then I'll, I'll pray for us.